our show, Let's Finish Cancer, where we bring you the brightest cancer experts and compassionate cancer navigators. Our goal is to make you stronger at a time you might feel at your weakest and to empower you to make the best decisions for you and your family. You'll hear about the latest in technology and treatment options, stories from patients and survivors, doctors that see you as more than a cancer diagnosis, and a whole person approach to cancer care. We want to be on your journey with you, and we want you to know that at times it can be bumpy, but we're here for you, and we want to help you forward. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Leah Stevens, Child Life Specialist, and Annette Deacons, Nurse Manager at Providence Sacred Heart Children's Hospital in Spokane, Washington. Today we're talking about childhood cancer and the role of Child Life Specialists and nurses during treatment. Remember everyone, most of our questions will come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our experts today, Leah and Annette. Hi, ladies. Hello. Hello. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. We are going to get you started with a really easy one. I'm going to have you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourselves and the work you do at Providence, and I'm going to have you start, Leah. So, like they said, I'm Leah Stevens, and I have been a child life specialist here at Sacred Heart for just about four years. Um, I currently work in the Pediatric Outpatient Oncology Clinic, and our role as child life specialist, we do education, support, and advocating for our patients and families, um, and keep family-centered care at the center of our practice. So our role is really just to um, help families through the most troublesome time in their life on this cancer journey and to just be a support for them. Awesome. And how about you? And I'm Annette Deacons. I have been a nurse for nearly 30 years. Um, I've been at Providence for 19 years and in my current role as uh, the nurse manager for both inpatient and outpatient pediatric oncology um, for about two and a half years. Wow. So you've been doing this for a couple days. I've been around a day or two. (laughs) Well, Leah, you mentioned uh, when you were talking about your role here, family-centered care. Can we talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So for family-centered care, it means that not only is our focus on the patient, but it's also on the family as a unit. So uh, making sure that not only do we cater to the patient's needs, but the sibling's needs, the parent's needs, making sure that everyone is up to speed on what's going on in the diagnosis journey, and everyone has a solid understanding of what to expect throughout the length of treatment, whether it's a few months or uh, three years. Well, you know, our topic, we could talk a lot about just pediatric healthcare in general, but today we're talking about cancer, and I'd love to hear from you just a little bit about your experience working in pediatric oncology. Um. As I said, um, I have been a nurse for uh, almost 30 years, and really all of that has included pediatric oncology. Um, so I have I've worked at the bedside uh, as a bedside nurse, uh, taking care of patients and families. I have worked uh, with uh, the physicians as a nurse coordinator, helping to coordinate all of those small details for the treatment of these children. And as the manager, I get to uh, advocate for the staff and for the families uh, to make sure everybody has the tools that they need uh, to get through uh, every day. 
Well, I know, Leah, we heard several times, we've talked to several people in the hospital in the last few days, we've, we've heard that your job brings the fun, but also is very, very critical in helping patients kind of understand the cancer journey. So could you talk to me a little bit how you help kids understand cancer? Because I know as an adult, the first time I heard I had cancer, I just tuned out. I couldn't focus or anything. How, how do you do that with a, a young child and their family? Yeah, so I think it's really important um, for us as child life specialists, we have a huge background in child development. So really understanding the child and where they're at developmentally so that we can bring the language down to meet them where they, what their needs are. So um, we always like to say we're kind of like the middlemen between the staff and the families because we have a different understanding. So taking whatever their diagnosis might be and turning it into age appropriate language. So um, for Leukemia, for example, leukemia is a really big word. And so we might say, you have cancer in your blood. Um, so just kind of breaking the words down for the patient so they have a better understanding. Um, and then even just talking about cells, you know, starting really small. So saying, this is what the cell's role is in the body, whether it's, you know, to produce hair or to, um, you know, make your nails grow long or do something really small that they can talk about and, you know, refer it to maybe Legos and talk about how they build on oh, each other. Something so relatable. Yeah. Exactly. So trying to find something that we can relate to them on their level to help them understand um, at, like they said, that developmentally appropriate level is what our role really is in that education piece. And then of course we have to make it fun. So doing it through play or using Legos, like we said, or even Play-Doh to explain a tumor, you know, small little balls oh, of Play-Doh, yeah. if you add them all together, it's one big tumor. So trying to find something relatable is how we try to help them understand what they are going through. That's amazing. Well, your role is so important, and obviously the doctors are very important and the nurses are very important, but Annette, how many, how many people are on a patient care team, or what other roles are maybe on a patient care team that people don't think about? Our uh, care teams are quite extensive. Uh, they start with the provider, the physician, and they work directly with a nurse coordinator to coordinate all the entire treatment course. Um, but then we pull in child life. We have social work available. We have uh, dietary uh, to address nutritional needs mm -hmm. for the families. Uh, we use all of the therapies, PT, OT, ST, all of those, you know, speech therapy, physical therapies. Um, child life specialist is indeed important. Uh, we branch out from the hospital uh, proper and also pull into the team, uh, the home infusion uh, oh, right, right. staff, uh, because they there's a lot that happens outside of the walls of the hospital uh, that the family has to own and they get that support from uh, the home infusion team. We also have support from teachers uh, as part of a a school program that we have within the hospital uh, to help support them from the beginning to well beyond uh, past the end of treatment. That education piece is so important. I actually had a chance to see the school classroom. And it's so interesting because, you know, you, you don't think about the disconnection that students might feel when they're not around their classroom. And sure, you know, there's Zoom and, you know, in the world of COVID, things have changed a little. But even that transition of I came in here as kind of a quote unquote normal kid and I'm going to go back to school as the kid who maybe doesn't have my hair or has lost weight or is just different, has been gone. How do you how do you kind of help them transition? I think, um, like Annette said, utilizing our hospital school program is one way and helping during treatment to make sure that the school is up to speed, whether that's, you know, doing 
a 504 or IEP or what it might be to help meet the needs that student or that patient might have. But also there's so many great programs out there. Um, we have something called Monkey in My Chair, which they literally send a monkey to the classroom in lieu of the student being there. So they're in the class at all times. So it's not like the patient's missing forever. It's just the monkey's there while the patient's at the so hospital. Cute. I saw that monkey uh, yesterday. So cute. Yeah. It's a phenomenal program. Um, we also have something called school reintegration. So in the past, we've had staff members go into the school to help explain why the patient might have hair loss or why the patient might have weight loss or what it might be um, to help when they do transition back. The class is already aware of what that patient's been going through. So it kind of helps with that transition piece. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. And little things like talking about the port, you know, it, you can't roughhouse with Johnny or whoever it might be to make sure that um, they don't accidentally bump the port um, or anything that could be detrimental to their the healthcare piece of things. You know, you mentioned the port, and we actually had somebody ask a question about how do you have a conversation with a kid who now has a port and explain it to them when they're so young? Yeah, we have families who come up with all sorts of different names. We have families who call it the button or okay. families who call it their Iron Man or whatever it might be, again, to make it relatable to the patient to help them understand. Um, a lot of the times we just, you know, say that's where we put our tubies so that we can get you the medicine your body needs to get better or... Again, whatever language the families like to use, we try to keep it consistent across the board so that what they're saying in the home environment and what we say at the hospital is consistent for the patient. So we try to eliminate some of that confusion. How about you, Annette? I mean, I can only imagine, I mean, getting my, my father to take his medication is complicated. How do you get a child to take their medication? You must have some tricks you can share. I'll tell you, our best trick is the child life specialists. Uh. They, <laughs> this is, that's what they do. Um, they are trained in uh, just... It, the best practice, all of their, all of what they do is research-based, just like the treatments, the supportive care uh, that they provide is um, research-based as well. And these girls have all the tricks from positive reinforcement, um, we do sticker charts and uh, rewards, some families are really good at limiting those rewards so it doesn't get a little um, overwhelming, so they're, they're rewarded every time, um, but very selective. Um, but yeah, our child life specialists are the key to getting the, the kids involved in participating. What is the role of the parent or the family, the family members that are here in hospital with them, and, and even when they go home, how do you kind of integrate them into the care plan? We try to keep them as the main caregiver. Um, they are their child's caregiver. They know their child best, and um, they know what will work and what will not work for their child. Um, and so we give as much teaching and uh, support to the parents as we do to, to the, the patient uh, themselves so that uh, they feel empowered to be an advocate for their patient, whether it's in the hospital, at home, in a social setting, or if they live in an outside uh, community, if they have to go to an outside uh, emergency room, they know what their child needs and can advocate for their children. I also imagine that it's very much up to the family, but it's also probably age related too, right? Like at what point do you kind of, the patient is the primary patient rather, like at three years old, you're probably talking more to the parents at seven, eight, well, 17, you're definitely mm -hmm. talking more to the patient. What's kind of the age progression, I guess? 
Well, in the, the world of research, uh, which a lot of what we do is, uh, not only do we have to get consent from parents, we have to get assent or the child's agreement to enroll. And I want to say that's at like seven years of age. Oh, okay. Um, you have to sit down and make sure that the child understands as well, and so they assent. Um, and just like the rest of the world, when they become 18 and they hit that age of majority, then it shifts um, from parents' consent to the, the patient's consent. Got it. How do you as a child life therapist, because you probably have kids as they age, right? Especially mm -hmm. since there's many that are here multiple times. How do you kind of age them out? Like you just mentioned 17, 18. That's when you start going into the, maybe the adult side of the hospital. And I know it's not like at the, on your 18th birthday, you're kicked out. I get that. But like, how do you kind of transition them into that adulthood? Because they've been sick maybe a majority of their life. Yeah, so with the oncology population, it's a little bit different than some of the other chronic diagnoses. Um, if it's a pediatric cancer, whether they're in their 20s, they will still come to us in the pediatric world because it has the cancer itself has pediatric characteristics. So they're still followed by a pediatric specialist. So I think transition in the oncology world specifically looks a lot different. Um, I think from a child life perspective, our support like lessens a little bit just in the sense of, um, you know, they are able to cope on their own their and they needs. have a better yeah. understanding. Yeah. And so I think we don't have to support as much, but we do still see them. Um, and then follow up well into their 20s and sometimes even further than that. Amazing. Leah, I have to ask you, cancer doesn't just affect the patient, right? And I feel like we've talked a little bit about this. It's the family, it's the parents, whatever. But sometimes there's siblings involved. How do you, how do you integrate them into it? How do you, you know, talk to them about it? How do you make them understand? Yeah, so just like with the patient, we kind of do a developmental assessment, figure out where the sibling might be and their understanding of it. Um, kind of like I mentioned previously too, finding what words the family wants to use with the patient and the siblings to help explain what's going on. Um, a huge thing that we do in the child life world are sibling books. So we create a book to help explain, you know, why the patient's in the hospital in the first place, what it might look like before they get to go home, ways to stay connected with their sibling while their sibling's away from home. Um, and then we do a lot of encouragement with the parents. So not only talking about the patient who's in the hospital or in the clinic, but how to keep you know a normal routine for the siblings at home or trying to show them that they're still loved and cared about when their so much focus and attention is on the sick child. Um, I think that's the biggest struggle we see with siblings is that, well, mom's always with so-and-so right. at the hospital right. and I'm just over here waiting for you know, a hello or mm -hmm. a dinner night or whatever it might be. So encouraging parents to um, set aside some time for the sibling and um, making sure that they're still part of the equation and it's not that huge shift of like, we did everything as a family and now it's just mom and dad and brother or sister. So um, encouraging that and again, following up routinely with them because just like with our patients understanding changing, um, siblings understanding might change or issues that they had in the beginning um, might have developed into something else. So just kind of doing that continual check-in to make sure that we're still meeting those needs throughout the cancer journey. And then I have to ask you, I mean, pediatrics is, is challenging sometimes. Oncology is challenging. Pediatric oncology has to be hard on mm -hmm. you and, and the staff in general. A, why did you pick it? And B, how do you keep doing it every day? 
Like many that end up working in pediatric oncology, it kind of happens by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are a handful that are that know from a you know early on in their careers that that's where they want to end up. Personally, I started with a whole other vision of what my nursing career would be, look like, and to take a step towards that, I took a position at another hospital just in the general pediatric world which included um, peds oncology, just to get my foot in the door. And then I fell in love. Uh-huh. Um, it is the most rewarding and the most heartbreaking job anyone could have all wrapped into one. Um, and it's the rewarding side of that that keeps um, myself and everyone else going back every day. Uh, to watch the families progress from um, a pile of sad and emotions and devastation um, to the day that on the day that they are receive that diagnosis to the pillars of strength that they become through the journey and through the challenges that they face. Um, there's nothing better in the world to witness. I can tell you love it. I can tell everybody here I've talked to has loved it. Everybody basically says the same thing. Yeah. Either you fall into it or it picks you. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about you know there's the hard part, but I saw a bell. And I heard that there's a bell ringing that happens here. Somebody explain that to me. Yeah. So at the end of treatment, we have something called the bell ringing celebration. Um, And I think it's something that's just with everything in the hospital has evolved over time. But the basis of it is there's a plaque that says, I mean, I could read it word for word at this point in time, but it's just a bell that talks about ringing it for hope and courage and health and moving on to this next chapter of life. And it is the most special moment to witness a patient read that plaque and ring that bell like their life depended on it and just celebrating the completion of the hardest thing these kids will ever have to go through and it's a very emotional time um, but it's a great way for staff to you know just see all their hard work come to fruition and say we got this patient and this family through the hardest time of their life and now we get to celebrate alongside them and yeah I can't talk about how special it is for everyone to be able to witness that. It's such, it's such rewarding work that you guys do. So first, thank you. I mean, I think everybody would want to say thank you, so I get to do it on their behalf. But I think you know, a lot of people are, are asking. I, we have a question from Jennifer from Facebook that says, being a child life specialist sounds rewarding and amazing. How do I do it? Like, what's the background? How did you get into it? Yeah, so it's kind of a newer profession, which sounds silly because it's so needed. But it started in the 80s, and so it's really not that old. And so... Um, the education is still kind of evolving, but for me personally, I have my master's in child life. Um, a lot of my coworkers have their bachelor's in a child development or related field. So whether it's child psychology, child development, um, and then it's actually a pretty extensive student journey. You have to um, do a practicum in a hospital setting. You have to complete a 600 hour internship. 600, wow. Yeah. It's a really long internship. That's a commitment. They're all unpaid, cause that's how Oof. internships are. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Um, but yeah, so once you do the internship, you have to take a certification exam. So similar to nursing in the sense of you have to be certified and you have to, um, once you become certified every five years, you have to recertify. So continuing ed credits and making sure that you're keeping up on the current practices and, um, like Annette said, all the current research in the field. But you love it every day? Every day. Yeah. 
I can tell. I can tell that you both love it. But I am going to ask you the hard question, which is how, how, how do you handle self-care? Because it is challenging. And I know you talked a little bit about kind of the love of it, right? And it can, be, it can be hard, but you must do something to make yourselves feel better to get through it every day. Uh, yeah, no, self-care is uh, the most important part. Um, and that looks different for everybody. What works for me is not going to work for Leah or for somebody else. Uh, but my personal self-care journey has to include movement of some kind, whether mm -hmm. it's running, getting on the bike. Um, I do a, a daily meditation as I'm falling asleep uh, just to help refocus and recenter um, my own personal well-being. Um, I recently have started sending out an email to all of my staff every Tuesday, calling it Tuesday's timeout, um, just with, some of them are really dorky, but um, what works, for, like I said, what works for one person may not work for somebody else. And my goal with my weekly email is that somebody will find a nugget of truth, a nugget, you know, a simple practice that will help increase their, their self-care. Well, I imagine it's it's similar to like even the the play play that you guys do. Not every child responds in the same way, so you probably have like a repertoire of things that you go through with each kid, right? Like, do you find there's some things that work with most kids, but then there's it's, tell me something like unique that you've tried with a child that maybe nothing else had worked. Oh man, I think that just with everything, it's a journey, right? What works for them week one of diagnosis, three months in, they decide yeah. that is no longer their sure, thing. And sure, sure. I'm over it. Yeah. And especially the younger kids, we know. You buy them a toy one day and the next day, they <laughs> don't want it anymore. That attention span, man. <laughs> yes. So yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, it's kind of interesting in the oncology world, a lot of the times when our kids are NPO or they can't eat because they have a procedure coming up or there's something like that, all they want to play with is food. Oh, and all they want to watch is the Food Network. And all they want to do Aww. is something related to food. And so it always just makes me giggle a little bit when I'm like, okay, let's do this. And I'm trying everything to keep their mind off of food. And they're like, no, I want to play the cake pop game. And I'm like, <laughs> but do you really want to? Like, let's, you know, try something that's going to make take your mind off of it. And so it's always interesting how when you walk into a room with one plan, you're like, this is going to be so great. And it's all child-led. We take their lead and it never goes as planned but that's what keeps it fun and exciting and makes us go back in for more so you have to kind of be always adding new toys new props new games new whatever to kind of your your little arsenal there where does that come from yeah we um i mean i assume that you have partners i assume that you maybe get donations from local organizations maybe even parents bring, i don't know yeah we rely heavily on donations in the child life realm um we partner with Children's Miracle Network, does a lot of our donations. Um, our holiday donation drive every December brings in tons of our supplies for the year. Um, whatever is not utilized um, during the holiday season is saved for the remainder of the year. So, you know, to help celebrate birthdays, to help celebrate special milestones. Um, like Annette talked about earlier with, you know, if they fill out their sticker chart and it's full completion, they get a little prize from us. So. Um, Anytime that we do anything in the hospital, it's all donation-based. Yeah. We rely so heavily on outside partnerships and um, internal 
donations as well. I've, I've spoken with your foundation team, and that's basically what they said. And even some of the staffing, like mm-hmm. some of the positions are funded through donation, which is amazing to me. Um, I have to say, I've been here several times in, in my course of working at Providence, and I don't think I've ever come here and not seen something happening, whether it be the window washing or it be uh, Halloween. I saw all the kids getting dressed up for Halloween. I saw a birthday celebration, a princess birthday celebration. Like, you guys do something all of the time to make it feel like a, a fun environment. Like, it's not a hospital. It does not feel like a hospital to me. Our motto is always, let the kids be kids. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that just because they have to go through something doesn't mean they have to miss out on being a child and those special milestones that those of us who didn't have childhood cancer got to experience when we were growing up. We want to make sure that it's the same for them. Everyone deserves the same chances in life. Absolutely. I do have a hard question, and I I really didn't want to ask it, but I'm going to. Not every child survives childhood cancer, right? What happens when you've reached the point where there's clearly no cure? I mean, how do you handle that with the children? How do you handle it with the families? How do you handle it with the siblings? It can't be easy. No, it's, it is not easy. And uh, that is a time when actually the team that I spoke of earlier expands. Um, and we do pull in our palliative care team. Um, we can pull palliative care in when it's the when when there is no longer hope for cure, but we also bring them in earlier at times when there's chronic issues, like chronic pain issues. Um, But at this point, uh, you know, it's tough conversations that happen with the the doctor and the family and deciding that comfort is the goal um, and not, not cure. And that has to be agreed upon Um, and we will never force that decision on our families um, but they are definitely heartfelt conversations um, when it's that time and everybody is involved in supporting uh, the family through that the nurses the providers uh, child life social work all hands on deck all hands on deck We've, I've, I've had the pleasure and honor of speaking with some of our palliative team, especially around pediatrics, and I think what they've said is the hardest part is when the family isn't in agreement. Mm-hmm. Maybe mom and dad don't agree, mm-hmm. right? Or grandma and grandpa don't agree. Yeah. I can imagine that that's challenging. Yeah, yeah. that is, that is the, the most challenging part. Yeah. It's sad and it's tough when the family is in agreement and they help guide their child um, to the end of their life, but it is, it's tougher when there's that disagreement and one half of the party is ready to make that step and the other half just can't let go yet. That's the hardest part. can't imagine. You've talked about the expanded team. I'm guessing that behavioral health probably plays a big role in cancer care for pediatrics. How does that fit in? Oh my goodness. Um, It is such a need um, and there's not enough of it just like in the rest of the world. It is such a devastating blow to the family and to the patients, Um, but we have been able to secure um, some behavioral health to integrate within our our team already. And so we have gone from struggling to find a counselor for some of these kids to having a counselor available a couple times a week um, uh, in the clinic itself. So it's recognized as a significant need and we've been able to address it not as much as we need to um, but better than we used to well we're almost out of time and I know it's been a a challenging conversation so I'm going to give you guys a fun one to end 
give me, each of you, give me either a really cool patient story or a really cool experience that every day you remember and say, this is why I come to work. Leah, you look like you got one. You got one. I, you know, kind of like Annette was talking about earlier, like it's just such a rewarding job. And um, gosh, I just have so many stories of like why I keep coming to work. But I think the kind of more generalized story is watching the patient day one come in, kicking and screaming and fighting us to get their port accessed for the first time. And the family just looks at us and they're like, this is just never going to go well. And we're like, it's going to, we're going to work with you. We're going to come up with a good coping plan. We're going to be there to support you. And I get the best eye rolls from parents. Like, you don't know what you're talking Girl, about. Girl, good luck. Right? And they're like, you've never met my kid. And I'm like, oh, but I promise I've done this long enough. And then, uh, you know, months later, the family looks at me and they're like, oh, you were right. Did you see that? And so it's so much celebration. So anytime I see a patient struggling to cope, and then I get to watch them succeed. And then they say, you know, I think I can do it alone this time. Wow. That is the most rewarding thing ever. And I mean, when they don't need you, yes. when they don't need you is the best part. Yes, because yeah. it shows that all of our hard work has paid off in that sense. And so, like I said, I have so many stories, but I think those kind of general ones are just the ones that remind you why you do what you do every day. Like Leah, I have a million stories, having done this for feels like a million years. But the, the story that popped in my head when you asked that question uh, is one of my favorite. I was taking care of a, a teenage girl. Um, she was in the hospital and had received a chemotherapy. And following the administration of this chemotherapy, we have to monitor levels to make sure they go down enough so they can be discharged. And generally, it clears in about two days. Well, this girl did not want to clear her chemo levels. She was in there for a week. Wow. Um, kept a positive attitude the entire time. She was fantastic. But after, probably after about five days, I saw that her level still hadn't gone down. And so I broke, busted into her room, probably would be the best way to put that, <laughs> and started singing, let it go, let it go. <laughs> Let the meth, the trexate flow. <laughs> and um, she never let me forget it. Of course not. Of course not. And now we're all going to go watch Frozen. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's amazing. I have had so much fun with you guys, and I think everybody listening has had fun with you, and it's very obvious that you love what you do. So thank you, Leah. Thank you, Annette, for joining us today on Let's Finish Cancer. We look forward to continuing the conversation on whole person approach to cancer care with more experts from Providence in our future episodes. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under the Future of Health Station or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health System. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.